Arlington Links rely on partnerships and the amazing work of so many organizations and leaders to achieve our collective community goals. I hold dear the bonds of friendship. We are friends transforming communities through service. implement transformative programs that address the most critical needs of underserved communities. Welcome to LinkedIn Impact with the Arlington Links, a podcast which transforms our community by highlighting the issues, resources, and leaders that you need to know. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of LinkedIn Impact with the Arlington Links. My name is Krista Jones, and I'm excited to host this podcast produced by the Arlington, Virginia chapter of the Links Incorporated. What is the future of diversity, equity, and inclusion? Lately, there have been more and more media reports about a decreasing number of DEI officers, and also a growing number are being asked to take on additional responsibilities outside of the DEI lens. The Supreme Court's landmark decision to gut affirmative action has made it unlawful for colleges to take race into consideration as a specific factor in admissions, like programs at the two universities at the center of the case, Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. Attacks on black history in our schools have become more common. Despite the ostensible desire for corporations, universities and organizations and other institutions to embrace diversity after the George Floyd murder, what many thought was too good to be true may truly be a fad. Additional questions have arisen, like how artificial intelligence can be discriminatory and how our communities, philanthropy and workplaces are adapting to demands of inclusivity and belonging. How will we measure our progress? And when will we know if we are indeed a diverse, equitable, and inclusive society? In this episode, I speak with Samia Bird, Chief Race and Equity Officer, Deputy County Manager in Arlington County, and Diane Britt-Smith, actor and model, about their experiences and thoughts about how we are embracing DEI today. Enjoy the conversation. So can you talk to us about the work that you've done with DEI? What is your own perspective on DEI? So my perspective is really interesting from a government space because I've never had an opportunity from a DEI perspective, like in a lot of different organizations, you know, we're talking about diversity, inclusion. We talk about equity. But in a broader sense, we've been able to really focus in government on racial equity, centering everything that we talk about from an equity perspective, a diversity perspective, inclusion perspective, even from belonging. And that's pretty unique to me, especially in government. Like I would have never thought that I would have an opportunity to talk about racial equity as my job in local government. But it makes sense Mm -hmm. if we think about inequities systemically and where and how they started and what they're rooted in. 
So it makes a lot of sense, although, you know, it's not something that had been common for quite a while, especially that I can think of in governments like Arlington or Alexandria or other places where people are focusing on it as a social movement. And that's not the role of government necessarily. I was at the Voice of America in Washington, D.C., which is an international media company. Mm -hmm. And there are people there who speak from 45 different cultures who speak at least double that number of languages. Mm. So they come from places around the world that um, are very different than ours, culturally, economically, everything. So mixing and mingling and working with people from different cultures is an automatic, instamatic exercise in DEI. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, there's there's gender, but there's also... I know the word disabled is not necessarily politically correct anymore, but at the time it certainly was. So at one point, all of my staff members, every single one of them had an accommodation, some Mm. kind of thing that you could or could not necessarily see. And as a manager, my job was to make sure that they remained mainstreamed to the extent possible and that I was aware of their situation and made their jobs, uh, made it seamless to our customers, if that makes sense. So that has, that was my career experience with DEI. At, I left my job, I retired early as the director of training. So while I worked on the programming side, I moved to be the director of training. So mm-hmm. we were responsible for DEI training. Mm-hmm. And again, I will say that that is challenging in an organization where people come from so many different countries. Mm-hmm. And many of them, interestingly, have to deal with things that the United States has sort of conquered, I would say, like ADA is a U.S. law. It is not the case in, let's say, Nigeria. So there is no requirement for a building to have an elevator mm-hmm. uh, or a ramp. So people from around the world in my organization have dealt with things much greater than many of us have, and still they rock. So that's another perspective that a lot of us didn't have, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Can you share with us about the time period you were with Voice of America, just to give some perspective? Sure. I started there in 1992 Mm -hmm. and left in 2021. Absolutely. And to that point, you know, how have you seen society's implementation of EI work evolve over the last several years, even though you may not have done DEI until more recently, exclusively, just from your own personal perspective, how do you think you've seen it change throughout the years? I would say that, you know, these things tend to go in cycles, like generational Mm -hmm. cycles. But I would say over the last several years, I've seen it change in a number of ways. You know, when we had George Floyd's murder, when we had a lot of more blatant incidents where people had to take notice, the emphasis on race Mm -hmm. and the racial disparities and Black, anti-Black racism in particularly, and then AAPI hate, those Mm -hmm. things I think became more elevated. I -hmm. think given the context and the environment that we live in where everything is so accessible and available to people to see, and there's that constant reporting and constant visuals that it just made some things more apparent. But then at the same time, you know, I also see that pushback and the resistance to it got a little bit of 
heightened attention for a little bit of time and then our propensity to sustain our momentum and our attention span to focus on those difficult things when we want to continue to push the resistance in the opposite direction is okay well let's just change the words now so whereas we were talking very specifically you know there was no issue with me saying racial equity now there are things like well how about inclusion how about belonging <laughs> or just kind of trying to modify our terminology so that it's more palatable to people because i think people are not wanting to continue to hear about racial equity or people are starting to get tired of it and I still think it needs to be centered personally. Like we can't back away from it. Yes, can we, you know, we're always changing the way we normalize conversations and we need to be mindful of that because we want to bring people in. But that doesn't mean that we can divert our attention to things that we think, well, we'll just focus on belonging. Well, we just, we'll just focus on inclusion, but there is no belonging or inclusion until we can address, I think, racial equity. I think that's a great point. And we hear more and more these days about people worried that this is just a fad. And like you said, sometimes we do things, we do see these things go in cycles, but I think you're absolutely right in terms of we're going to have to uh, focusing on the main, <laughs> yeah. really trying to do equity because when you quote unquote water it down, you know, you get away from the, the original goals. I think that's yep. an excellent point. So can you cite some wins from your perspective and how have we progressed in this area, in your opinion? Oh, absolutely. So then I'm going to shift to my second career. I left VOA in 2021 to launch a second career, which happens to be in front of the camera. Most of it is in front of the camera. So I was almost 59 years old and launched an acting and modeling career, mainly commercial. Mm -hmm. um, some print work, but mainly commercial. One of the reasons I've been able to be hired for acting and modeling gigs is my demographic. Mm -hmm. So I'm a petite Black woman with a head full of white hair. Mm -hmm. And we represent people who look like me in some shape or form, represent great purchasing power. Mm -hmm. We are an important demographic at the ballot box, at the cash register, wherever it is. And companies are realizing that and they want to see us represented on TV in their commercials, in their print ads. So that's my success story. Sadly, mainstream, I shouldn't say sadly, but sadly on a person to some people who for whom this has affected them, aren't getting the same kinds of jobs that that my demographic is getting. So there's a, as an example, 44 year old white woman in my building with whom I've become friends. She's an actor and she can't get commercial work because mm. they're hiring people like me. Now it's sad for her, it's good, good overall. And yeah, sort of like affirmative action, reverse you know, discrimination is not a good thing, but affirmative action was largely seen as positive. So I, I just want to give that little caveat. But yes, we are represented and that is a win. One quick story, one of the shoots I went on, it was for a major utility. I walked in the room to get makeup and there was a young man in a wheelchair, a beautiful man in personality and spirit and in appearance. And mm -hmm. I had the longest conversation with him about why he's being hired. And it is just what you said, DEI. Mm -hmm. People in, who use wheelchairs, are they purchase things, you know, they buy Coke, they use, you know, XYZ. 
they need to be represented too. So those are particularly good wins. That's really fascinating to me because I would think, you know, the especially the example that you gave of the the 44-year-old white woman, as we're moving towards greater awareness in society of DEI, I can still always assume that there was still, and I know there's probably roles out there for her. I know you're not saying she's, all the roles are going to quote unquote people that fit into this more DEI perspective, but it just does make me, I just assume there were still companies, firms still actively looking for people of all different types. So that's just an interesting example that you shared, but I think it's a Mm -hmm. great example. It really shows you're right. It shows how we've kind of evolved, especially in your space. Yes. One thing she said to me, I thought was very interesting. She gets work, but not nearly the work she used to, to the point where she has a survival job. That's what we call it. And that's what she has to do to make a living. Acting and modeling are still her first career. And I've seen her on several auditions. Uh But when you see the commercial on TV, you realize they've hired somebody who's either heavy or has a disability or is black. And it causes some issues when you see an interracial, not you or me, but when people see an interracial couple on a Cheerios commercial. Yes. First of all, it gets their attention. Right. It gets their attention and Um. makes you realize this is a mirror. This reflects society. Yes. Just because you may not think that interracial coupling is a great idea because that's your paradigm doesn't mean that that's not mainstream society, just like the person who uses the wheelchair. So, yes. Oh, one other thing. My friend who lives in the building, she said, I'm disappointed now and discouraged now because I'm not getting as much work as I used to. And the work is going to you, meaning me. I have no doubt that the pendulum will swing Ah. in the other direction. And while that sounds negative. That's just the cycle of life. Yes. I hope that it's very inclusive and that you see people in wheelchairs, you know, and black people and white people and green people and all of that. Um, One of a a recent shoot that I did, there was a gentleman who had vitiligo. It was a skincare Mm -hmm. commercial. It actually is a print ad. And when he walked in the room, admittedly, we all looked like, hmm. And then we all smiled. Of course, people with vitiligo need skincare. Yes. They should be reflected. So it may make you look when you see an interracial couple if you're not, if that's not your thing. But when you see the person with vitiligo, yeah, okay, well, that makes sense. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. And it's, I love you have, thank you so much for doing this podcast because I think this perspective, particularly in the marketing, the acting, the film, I don't want to say it's kind of a reflection to such a, a key piece. I feel like when we talk about this topic, at least I think about it more from an organizational, corporate perspective, hiring DEI officers, but your mm-hmm. perspective is so critical and you're mirroring society and then you're also kind of leading the way. Well, you can be <laughs> leading the mm-hmm. way in a lot of ways. So thank you. That's Thank you for sure. that perspective. I feel like some wins have been some of the things that we actually just talked about that people are still using the word racial equity. And I've seen a number of people in the county with their work specifically using data to point to disparities based on race, Mm -hmm. using the equity lens that we established a couple of years ago on their projects or their plans and their analysis to show disparities based on race. But most importantly, I think it's been the conversations. And I think people 
want to somehow discredit that having a discussion about race, particularly in the workplace, is not enough. I think in some ways it is a great significance in terms of a win, because like I said, we were never talking about it, but just talking about it leads to some form of action. And so for us, I've seen people start to adopt an equity mindset from the individual contributor all the way up to senior leaders and elected officials. When we can actually see people sit on the dais, and for some, it may be just talk, but the more you talk about it, the more you can operationalize it, and the more you start to see it evolve in the actual work. Someone said to me, I was on a call not too long ago with some colleagues in other jurisdictions who also are equity officers, and they said, operationalizing is sustaining. And I thought that was so powerful because it's the way that you make it tangible in the work when we keep seeing it show up in a policy or a plan or someone's analysis that they've presented to the board. You know, the huge win to me was the county's work with missing middle, mm -hmm. even though it's not been implemented. I mean, that was significant in that it changes the way we consider how we do housing, who we allow to have access to housing in the county and where. And even though it will take some time to manifest, it changed some longstanding policies and understanding that people had about who could live where and then who has access to what based on where they live. And, you know, decades of zoning law and policy and regulation and land use law that dictated who was able to live where and again have access, that is significant. I mean, that's huge. That's a huge win to me. And the conversations that were happening as a result of that, while they may have been uncomfortable for many and causing or feeling as though they caused fractions in the community, those fractions were already there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it allowed for them to be surfaced so we could have real conversations in terms of what do we mean? What are we talking about when we say racial equity and who do we anticipate that we will be as a county and who has access to what in the county and really That's grappling with that? That was a huge win to me. Definitely. I definitely agree. And it's just interesting to see how that debate on missing middle or upzoning is really moving across the country. But I think you're right when it comes to conversations. I mean, these are necessary conversations to have. No one ever said this was going to be easy <laughs> and it's okay to have backlash, but I think we'll eventually get to where we wanna go. And, you know, speaking of that, what reactions have you seen to other challenges DEI work? So whether it's affirmative action, the Supreme Court affirmative action decision, changes in this incorporations maybe down not hiring as many DEI officers or maybe combining their work with other areas of the company or banning African-American studies or changes in curriculum, particularly we're hearing a lot from Florida, but it's now moving across mm -hmm. the nation. Is there any reaction that you've kind of seen to those recent challenges? So one of the things that, you know, struck me about like the affirmative action decision or these subtle yet also not so subtle ways that we're trying to rewrite history or 
change the curriculum so that white people aren't offended or other people aren't offended or trying to change the narratives about slavery or, you know, dismantling some of our DEI programs in the corporate arena. You know, we've seen the reaction has been interesting. I think backlash comes in a number of different ways. The direct, okay, well, we're no longer going to do this, you know, when policy changes or people in leadership change and they there's maybe a feeling of, you know, being threatened or not wanting to have a certain connotation associated with the work that you're or the organization or the company. But it also comes in the form of, well, we can't legally say this, but we can say that. So again, that watering down of, you know, changing how we talk about things, people stepping away, people feeling like, okay, we have all these constraints. We can't really focus on this right now. You know, it's kind of isolating people to, well, you just stay over here and do a few little programs, a few trainings, and that'll be enough. You know, Mm -hmm. so it's, it's kind of deminimizing the impact of kind of what we were saying before, like while it's the conversations are important, it's the lack of conversations. Well, less to, or it could be less strength than just conversations. We'll train a couple people, but then what are you training them to do? Mm-hmm. So not really giving the resources needed to the work so that it can be sustained and support to the people in the jobs doing the work. You know, you see people shrinking back from that because they don't want to be associated with it. You know, I would say in Arlington, I appreciate that I have a lot of support. I hope it doesn't move to being passive support, Mm -hmm. meaning we support you over here as long as you stay over there doing it and don't interfere in these other areas. Mm -hmm. That would be unfortunate because you can see the wear, you can see the waning, I would say other areas where I see some of that, the backlash is, but maybe this is in a, a different way. We talked about, you know, how you need to evolve. So it's, well, we can't necessarily directly say race because, you know, let's say, for instance, in the school system, you know, changing the curriculum, you know, they, the legislation was, if you're teaching anything about diversity and equity and inclusion, you'll be fired. Or we're not hiring anyone that has a title of a DEI officer anymore, you know, things like that. So finding other ways to do the same thing, mm-hmm. like, you know, now we see sustainability. So mm-hmm. is it a pairing of sustainability and equity that can reach broader audiences where you can still center racial equity in that? Because we know the data and the disparities will always show that race needs to be a central part of that work. But if there's a broader conversation about sustainability and the environment, then are there ways to have those conversations? So I would say the backlash has been is that it really, and this is something that I struggle with a lot. The level of strategy that's needed to navigate Mm -hmm. all of the different scenarios and the ways that people want to not allow for this work to continue to go forward, to have momentum and be be sustained, it's hard because Mm -hmm. you're always having to think differently, outthink people, try to prepare in advance for or anticipate what the concerns and what the backlash was going to be. That's a large part of the job too, though, that we're always having to issue spot. 
like you always get in a space of your issue spotting, mm-hmm. looking for the negative mm-hmm. and ways to navigate that negative because you know that it's going to be there. So it's not dissimilar to what has been going on for generations, I would say, just meaning that we're going to have to think more differently about how we approach the work to be able to continue to do it. And so can you tell me, what do you think the future, where, how do we get wherever that final goal is, if there is a final goal? And I believe as you know, a former journalist, I believe in remaining neutral. There is greater power in being neutral and me saying things and you can figure out where you, meaning society, fall. Um, The political situation in our country is so discouraging. I think we've taken a million steps back. If we've taken a million and one forward, we've taken a million steps back in so many ways. And that concerns me. People are very upset when they see, you know, people rioting, for example. But that's the reflection of society and and where we are because people don't have a voice. So that's what they do, not in whole, but in part. That's what people do when they're angry. That's how they show out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I don't think that's good. But this is a terrible analogy, but I'm going to say it to you. A washing machine does not work unless it's agitating. Mm -hmm. It cleans the clothes because it's agitating. Mm -hmm. So if we don't agitate society and agitate each other by challenging norms, by picketing by protesting the needle will not move if Mm -hmm. we think about martin luther king jr and malcolm x they went against what a lot of people thought they should do but that's how progress is made so Mm -hmm. to answer your question directly we need to do more of the same we need to keep at it we need strong people to stand up and not sit back whatever your ministry is if in my case it's acting and modeling i want to stand up and say look at me yeah I may be five foot one, but you're not going to ignore me. Mm-hmm. Another thing we have not talked about, which is a huge thing for me, it is the almost the sole purpose of my content creation now on social media, ageism. Mm-hmm. So pro-aging versus anti-aging and age discrimination, um, all of those things sort of undercurrent and unspoken. And then there's the petite thing. There's not enough of us. We can't get runway model jobs. Nobody will mm-hmm. hire us for that. Anyway, Mm -hmm. I could go on and on. The long and short of it is agitation. That's what we need more of that. And we need more of these kinds of conversations that you're leading in order to move the needle and keep moving it. So the goal, it feels like it's always elusive and ever evolving, like we'll never get there. I always feel though, like this is generational work. The goal at the end of the day would be that we have been able to effectively change the system from within because we can't completely shut the system down but like how do we start to incorporate policy changes within the system of government that will change the outcome for people who have been systemically disadvantaged based on race for centuries you know how do we create a new system while we're still in the system operating and people can authentically feel as though they can come alongside people in the community doing this work and not be afraid to speak to it, to do it, to change it and change outcomes for people so that then we will see the diversity. We will see the inclusion. People will feel like they belong. But it starts with, you know, systems completely being changed. When we talk about our housing system, 
our education system, the economy, you know, all of these things, the justice system, the health system being accessible to everybody, regardless of their race, and that people can authentically show up as themselves and not fear retaliation, discrimination, concerns. Um, and what that future looks like is, again, how do we constantly evolve how we talk about this work and do the work and having more people doing it on a regular and consistent basis. So it's not just me doing it, but it's everybody's work to do equity, no matter what their job is. Like to me, that is the goal. Everybody thinks about equity when they're doing their work, racial equity, and they're all incorporating it into everything that they do. So it's just a standard part of our lives. Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate having you on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the invitation. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Samia and Diane. We want to hear from you. Do you have thoughts on DEI? What do you think is the future of DEI? Email us at arllinkspodcast at gmail.com. For more information on the Arlington, Virginia chapter, visit our website at arlingtonlinksinc.org and follow us on social media at Arlington Links.